Tonight's topic is poetry and science fiction, or science fiction with poetry, as the case may be. Uh, with me today is Stephanie Barr, Wendy Van Kamp, Ken Godsward, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, and Mike Van Horn. Very close. Um, so I'll let each of you introduce yourselves. I'm your host, Eric Klein. So Stephanie, why don't you start? I am a uh, fantasy and science fiction writer, and I should probably warn you that the majority of my um, poetry is actually for fantasy, but uh, I do write, did write a lot of poetry uh, early on. I'm also a rocket scientist and a mother of two special needs children who you may or may not hear sometime during the podcast, despite my best intentions. Hi, I'm Wendy Van Camp. I'm a author and poet of science fiction. I have one poetry collection called The Planets, which is nominated for an Elgin Award. And, uh, and I have uh, several of science fiction novels in the pipeline. Um, I actually am writing more poetry these days than I am books, but I, I do both. Ken, start with introducing yourself with the proper pronunciation of your name. Sure. Well, you actually did pretty good. It was good. I just say Ken Goodsward. But if you're depending on how Dutch you are, uh, I guess the proper pronunciation is more like Houtsvard, but uh, I don't expect anyone to be able to say that unless they are from another planet. I am writing science fiction. I'm writing, uh, well, a lot of other genres as well. I have too many projects uh, in the works, of course, as we probably all do. I began as a poet and have written several poetry books including one that is purely science fiction. And um, also um, in the last year, I've been branching out into publishing. So I've put together an anthology. Mike and Stephanie and Wendy have been involved in that project. And I'm also um, helping some other poets uh, with their publishing needs. Hi, Mike Van Horn. I write science fiction. And my uh, MC is a singer, so I started off writing lyrics for songs she performs. And so I uh, have a number of songs written, and I guess I would say these uh, well, are certainly verse. So I don't say I write poetry, but I write a lot of lyrics and verse. Uh, and in my stories, some of my... Um, Aliens speak in verse. So I'm a lyricist and a versist. We'll get back to that later. It's interesting you should mention uh, lyrics. I write science fiction and put poetry in because the law, the way it's written is you really can't put lyrics from actual songs that people know uh, without getting sued. So it was, okay, I can do poetry. I can use song titles. So let's go with poetry. So yeah, it, unless you write them yourself, you can get into a whole lot of trouble with the music industry. So I do write them myself. That makes it easier. Let's start with a simple question as to why do we want or why do we need poetry in fiction? What does it add? How does it improve the story in your opinion? Well, let's take Tolkien as an example. 
he uh, wrote many of the songs that the elves sang, and he put it as verse into his books, into the Lord of the Rings, and into, uh, of course, uh, The Hobbit. Um, and I think that the uh, poetry added a certain dimension to uh, the world building. It uh, helped musically in a sense, well, even though there was no music in the books, but uh, it helped create a sense of the culture of the, uh, of the elven people and of the dwarves, because you could see those cultural elements in their verse. And uh, I think the poetry in Lord of the Rings is certainly one of the more powerful aspects of the book and what makes it the classic it is today. Makes sense. In my case, it was going into science fiction, Blind Riesling from Robert Heinlein. You can tell an awful lot about the universe and the planets by the songs that this blind accordion player was supposedly performing the various places that he appears in the stories. Green Hills of Earth, um, the various things that are, are uh, not polite to talk about, about what people were going to do when they got uh, free of uh, their indenture on uh, Venus, all sorts of things that kind of lent a, a flavor and a character to the universe. Yeah, I would say that I would, uh, in addition to Tolkien, another influence for me has been Ursula Le Guin, who also has a lot of uh, verse in her fantasy stories. And I've kind of taken after them in putting short pieces uh, embedded in the text. And th that breaks it up. I think I've had a number of readers say that they really like the short uh, bits of verse in with the text. The influences are there. And as you mentioned, Le Guin, uh, there's much more in her fantasy than there is in her science fiction, but there's a little bit in the science fiction. Um, I was going to say, I actually grew up on Poe. So I grew up uh, on someone who wrote poetry. And I love his type of poetry, the long, long stories, uh, tragic, uh, rhymed rhythm, the old-fashioned way. I just love that. And, and one of the things that I look for in music even now is a lyricism is that that sense of poetry that's in the music most of my poetry tends to be more fantasy than science fiction but uh, that storytelling and that getting an emotional response because I think that's one of the things that poetry does really well mm -hmm. can be very effective if you put it in the middle of prose very much agreed I think that the link between fiction and poetry is actually almost an evolution in a way, uh, because if you look at the earliest forms of mythology, uh, essentially what we would call fiction now was more of a spoken word uh, tradition. Even before humans used writing, we were telling stories. And uh, the bard was a very important um, member of the community. And part of his job was to pass down these ancestral memories. And uh, that was often done through music or through rhyme or uh, through other types of poetic forms. Um, and if you look back at some of the existing, uh, some of the most ancient um, written records that we have, they are still written in these types of poetic forms. Uh, for example, Beowulf. And uh, those types of things, the Norse, Norse sagas, and uh, bef even much before that, there were the Greek tragedies, the Greek 
uh, uh, myths and legends um, such as the Odyssey, um, all those types of things. And even farther back to Sumerian, um, where it's it's harder for us to tell that there's a poetic form there. But if I'm not mistaken, there, there is some type of poetic form. So really the, the poem is the antis- well, almost the ancestor of what later grew into become fiction. In many cases, those stories really were fiction or overly exaggerated historical feats. So the migration from the tales and legends of a tribe all the way up to the tales and hope- hopeful future uh, in science fiction is, is definitely a continuum that's been ongoing. But the actual bringing back into fiction the rhymes, the meter, it's kind of hit or miss depending on the author. Uh, some do it, some don't. Well, poetry is yeah. also used as uh, chapter headings in science fiction. Uh, David Brin is a good example of that. He uh, writes a poetry style called sci-fi coup, which is science fiction themed haiku poems. And he used it as a base for his Trinity language for his uplifted dolphins. But he also liked to use um, the uh, sci-fi coup poems as the chapter heads of many of his books. I believe he did it in The Postman, um, in addition to his Uplift series. And, you know, small poems make great uh, chapter heads to help set a mood of what's coming forward in your book. So uh, I've always enjoyed seeing that in books. I, I'm sure other authors have done it as well, but Bryn comes to mind first. I'm glad you brought Bryn up because I'm, I'm actually reading Star Tide Rising right now, and it's just amazing um, the way that he is able to, through the use of poetry, to, to portray this sense of, of um, the other and the difference in ways of communicating which is like obviously necessary when they're, when humans and dolphins are communicating. Um, but it's quite interesting because they, they will switch into different modes of, of language, the subtle ways of misinterpreting a lot of that stuff is the kind of the reading between the lines that allows the plot to be so rich in, and nuanced between the characters. What do you mean ways of misinterpreting? For example, one of the characters will will say something to another character, uh, but that character has to then uh, go through this translational step of, I'm not thinking in trinary, but I'm being, we're speaking in trinary, which gotcha. is the language that, that they're using. So then there are, I think that the step of translation is a more explicit way of saying or of of bringing attention to the fact that we're actually always doing this because when you say a sentence to me you're stringing together a series of words but each word choice has subtle nuances you could say like especially because we have we have synonyms right but no synonyms mean the exact same thing um, and I think this is something that uh, that good writers know is that you have to choose the, I'm, I'm not even going to say correct, but there's a lot of different choices that you can make in terms of word choice. Uh, it's not just that you're communicating a specific semiotic meaning. You, you're actually 
enabling yourself to take very uh, nuanced shading and coloring in those words. So you're saying something that technically means the same thing as a different way you could say it, uh, but the way that you're choosing to say it with your word choice and uh, in some languages, different intonation means a lot more. So there's speech and language are not as simple. This is a message. This is what it means. There's a lot more going on than that. And uh, Bryn is a master at riding those waves, if you will, of interpretation and layers of meaning and different ways that you can take things. And uh, that comes across in the way that his characters uh, interact and based on their assumptions of what people are, how people are treating them or are thinking of them. And it's quite interesting. What you're just saying actually reminds me of one of the Star Trek Next Generation episodes where they have trouble with the language because it's contextual oriented rather than direct translation. And a lot of people don't understand the nuances between languages that are frequently lost over in fiction. I believe that was the Darmok episode. Exactly. Shaka, when the walls fell. Probably one of my favorites. There have been a couple of cases where language has become a legitimate character, if you would, in uh, visual fantasy or visual science fiction. There was the one movie that came out about a year and a half ago where the linguist was the primary character. She tried to figure out... Arrival. Arrival. Arrival, thank you. And Star Trek... But most of the times, uh, everybody's coming up with the babblefish or equivalent method of getting around language. Um, yeah, and, and, and that there's pros there, pros and cons for sure. Well, I can understand in TVs and movies, you don't want to have to keep putting subtitles and translations for everybody. It does tend to get old fast. In books, we're looking at a slightly different set of reasons and stories, at which point adding the poetry, adding the color, adding the culture, Even when we're keeping it to the same, yes, we're all writing in English, or even if it's fancy fonts or whatever else like they did in um, what uh, Tolkien did, where he went and wrote his own language and created his own font, it it adds something to the story. Yeah, for sure. So the obvious concept is which science fiction in poetry or poetry in science fiction has slightly different emphasis. When Wendy writes a series of poems that are science fiction themed or the science fiction themed haikus that we were discussing, that's different than somebody like me sticking uh, a Twelfth uh, Night Shakespeare based poetry festival in the middle of a book. They're completely different slants using similar tools. There's a whole science fiction poetry community out there, too. I mean, you don't just find poetry put into books. There are actual science fiction poets, of which I'm part of this community. Our works are published in like Asimov, I believe Analog features um, science fiction poetry. Um, And there's other magazines that just specialize in it. Um, Anthologies like Ken's Anthology that we all participated in, which is just science fiction poems as the theme. And I, I've specialized in sci-fi coup poetry for the last, gosh, eight or nine years now, just simply because I found it to be a, a fun form that I could do quickly. And over the years, I found that my poetry published easily because there are not really a lot of 
uh, science fiction haiku poets out there. So the magazines were actually coming to me to ask me to write poems for their magazines, which I still find rather incredible to this day. But um, that's how I, I got my first collection together. And it's a true poetry collection, um, just as a poetry collection of a literary type would be, except, of course, it's filled with science fiction and astro poetry. Oh, and there is a difference in that, too. Uh, Sci-fi coup is haiku poems with a science fiction trope theme, whether it's astro poetry is haiku poems that feature scientific concepts. And I do both. Uh, I, I'm fascinated by the planets and I wrote a lot of poetry um, about them going into science fiction or not science fiction, but rather science journals and finding out and learning about them, the, the planets and their history and using that as the inspiration for my poetry. But yeah, it, it's really interesting how the science fiction community uh, of poets is growing. Oh, and just to do a plug, if you'd like to join the Science Fiction and Fantasy Poetry Association, um, it's sfpoetry.org. And uh, I believe it's a very low um, annual dues, and the dues include your science fiction poetry magazines and it's just a robust community to join if you're a poet but yeah just go to the website i believe they even have a free newsletter for those that are just curious and you can sign up for it there it's actually it's a lot of sense that's kind of a extension off of the old um fantasy filk sings and stuff that were going on in the 70s and 80s and 90s for the various sci-fi conventions and stuff so it makes a lot of sense uh, that these things, this kind of a group and these kind of concepts would be growing over time. They're working on it. I noticed that at most of the major conventions, we now have a panel of poets that come and do a reading. So we're, we're trying to make our presence known. A lot of people don't even realize that people write science fiction poetry at all. So they're yeah. very surprised to learn that there's a whole community on it. But, you know, filk singers are a good example, too. I mean, it's people that do fan fiction to music. And I always enjoy hearing them when I'm at cons. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. But again, it's a very close, um, tight-knit community within the science fiction uh, sphere. When I told people I was doing a web podcast on science fiction poetry today, they said, boy, that sure sounds like a specialized niche. <laughs> it is it is but it's growing and i think if you like science fiction to read in general i think trying out a little bit of science fiction poetry would probably be something of interest it's it, it's very amazing some of the concepts and the emotions that are evoked by these other poets uh in the community to correct uh wendy it's sci-fi poetry.com that org goes out to page in japanese did I goof? I think I said org, didn't I? Let's see. Yeah, it's .com. Uh, membership Sorry about are, that. Uh, at $15 for the um, online-only version. Yes. Yeah, I think you can get print versions of the magazines, and they do ship them out worldwide. I mean, you yeah. don't have to be an American or anything. It's a global community of poets. It's, um, I yeah. usually just get the PDFs. It's a lot easier that way, and you get yeah. things quicker. Uh, but there, they have several either. publications, and if you're a member, you're more than welcome to uh, submit to them. They do pay for the poetry as well. 
so it, it's really a, a valuable resource, uh, especially if you're just dabbling in poetry. It's a great place to expose yourself to some excellent poets and to up your game. I have a question. What is, uh, I don't call myself writing poetry. I say I'm doing verse. Uh, what's the difference between poetry and verse in this context? Well, you know, a lot of the, the poets don't really do verse per se. They don't do music, lyrics. Um, they are actual poets. I would say the lyrics is more in the realm of the folk singers. They are writing uh, music and verse and uh, they perform it. But um, a lot of uh, the writers who write the folk music don't really want to perform. They're very shy. And so they have other people perform their work for them. So, yeah, I, I would say filk music and, and song lyrics and actual poetry are two different things, but they're kissing cousins. <laughs> well, really, my, my question is about poetry versus verse. I do poetry. I've been doing poetry for years and years, but I also am a musician and songwriter and have been in many bands uh, over the years. Um, I'm not really a well I've done a little bit of folk music but I do rock music I do punk I do jazz and I've written a lot of songs and music in all across the, these genres to me there's less of a difference in style or content or theme or structure than I think Wendy is indicating so not that I'm disagreeing with her but I think that yeah there there is a difference in terms of if I'm sitting down to write a poem, I'm not necessarily thinking about some of the same constraints uh, because my poetry tends to be somewhat freeform. Um, I don't usually do rhyming poetry. I don't always do verse poetry. Whereas if I am sitting down to write a song, there is some type of uh, structure in my mind at the beginning where I know that I have to make each line somehow fit, whether it's going to be, you know, four, four beats or whatever it is, there's, there is some kind of musical structure that I know that the lyrics will have to fit into. So that it is a different, it can be a different process. But having said that, I've also taken bits that were intended as poems, not written as songs, and I've later turned them into songs and I think I've probably also done the opposite, where I would take um, something that was going to be a song, and I just ended up throwing away the music and turning it into a poem. So it's not like cut and dry that they're different, but they are different because the approach is different, I guess. Well, I think I would agree with you. I think that's what I was trying to say, but maybe not as... Uh... Not as clearly as you. <laughs> okay. But, um, you know, I think music is more structured in its poetry beats, but poetry can be that way, too. I mean, we do have formal poetry that follows a certain structure. So they're, they're very close, but I think the music, just because it has that musical element and it does have certain constraints, does uh, set it apart a little bit. So, But I, I'm not going to quibble. I mean, I, I think that was a great explanation. Would anybody like to uh, volunteer and offer a sample of their uh, poetry with a explanation of where it is and why it fits into the particular uh, book that they put it in? Well, okay. I just happen to have some sitting here just because I was uh, getting them ready for another reading. So uh, I'll go ahead and read one. Um, 
This one is called from Pad 39A. It's a poem in three parts. Um, I was actually approached by a magazine editor who wanted to have a poem in her um, upcoming issue about the SpaceX launch. And because I'm known for writing uh, astro poetry, um, she came to me and I had a real quick deadline, but I managed to make it. And it's in the summer issue of the uh, Emporium magazine. Part one is called Apollo. At dawn, the monolith rises with brave men to ascend the heavens. We will journey to the moon. The nation holds its collective breath as television cameras spy. At dawn, the monolith rises with brave men to ascend the heavens. On magnificent blossoms of fire, Kennedy's dream comes to life. We see our world with new eyes. At dawn, the monolith rises with brave men to ascend the heavens. We will journey to the moon. Part two is called Endeavor. Over and over, the flying brick transports humans into orbit, landing home after her mission. When the Challenger explodes, we grow fearful of outer space. Over and over, the flying brick transports humans into orbit. Astronauts float in the space station, performing great experiments. The earthbound do not comprehend. Over and over, the flying brick transports humans into orbit, landing home after her mission. Part three is called Dragon. The rising dragon is a javelin. With precision pierces the sky, leaping forth from pad 39A. Despite masks and social distance, the nation relives Apollo mystique. The rising dragon is a javelin with precision pierces the sky. Former shuttle pilots rename SpaceX craft their endeavor, bringing the past into the future. The rising dragon is a javelin with precision pierces the sky, leaping forth from pad 39A. And that's the end of that one. It has a lot of fun historical science themes in that one. But for some reason, Stanley Kubrick keeps coming to mind, not Kennedy. Um, <laughs> well, you know, I wanted to capture the, the uh, connections with the past. Um, all three of the missions I described all came from the same pad on NASA. They all launched from the same place. And the shuttle pilots that flew Endeavor also were the pilots that flew the Dragon capsule. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to tie all these missions together to create kind of a sense of history that's coming unfold. And also, I wanted to point out that we're doing this during a time of pandemic, uh, the final one. I know when I watched the, the uh, launch live, it really struck me how even in the control room, all the technicians were wearing masks yeah. and were all spaced out, even though we were still sending people into space, which I thought was very inspiring. I agree. I was just surprised they wanted to come back so fast. <laughs> That's true. Well, you know, I think Musk wants to basically show that space travel can become a regular thing. So they go up, they come down, and let's maybe make it more normalized in a sense. And I think that's a good thing. That's what we've all been dreaming of all these years as we read our science fiction, is it not? 
Yeah, that's right. And I, I forgot who it was that said it, but some someone said that uh, flying a plane is easy. It's the taking off and landing that's hard. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, these guys, when I saw that launch, everything was just so perfect. I mean, even the, I didn't really touch on the landing of the uh, module that I guess it landed at sea on a platform, which blew my mind. That was incredible to watch as well. Um, and it gives me hope. I mean, this is really high tech, precise things and all for the best to make it safe and get us out there because it, it's time. So in my science fiction poetry, which I feel funny saying that because um, it kind of goes against what I'm trying to say right now. And that is that uh, I try I I have this kind of thing where I sort of blend the like or blur i guess i'm i try to blur what is science fiction and what is not so i will sometimes take um an idea that from from normal life and then sort of write it in a way that it could be about science fiction somehow but not necessarily or vice versa i'll take like a science fiction idea and then write it in a way that maybe i'm talking about like a normal something normal um so a, a lot of it has to do with this idea that i like to work around in all of my poetry um which is something that i call de decontextualization um which i'm not sure if it's actually a real word or not uh but to me it, what it means is um kind of stepping away from the normal uh world that we live in the normal way of seeing things the normal uh, assumptions that we take for granted and looking at things a little bit different way or um, imagining that uh, where you are or where an object is is in a different place or a different time and um, just sort of speaking about it as if that were true so that's kind of uh, i guess if there is a a persistent theme in my work. That is certainly one of them. Um, so I have a couple of examples here that utilize that. And so why not? I'll, I'll read you this one. It's called Staring at the Sea. Easy to hear the right note, staring at the sea. White cap craters like waves whose crash has long subsided into tranquility, settling into a cool hum a pale but revealing light speaks to me of mortality and peace, even if it's all just dust. I'll do another one here. Um, this is from a series that I have called Walker. Uh, this is Walker number two. And basically the concept here is that uh, it's just about people walking. And um, I, I try to uh, make it less obvious what these people are, where these people are, who they are, why they're walking. And then that's the, kind of the decontextualization part of it for me. So this is Walker number two. Thin light of a red sun, dimly cast stark shadows. Gravel rises steeply beneath the walker's boots, as if each step were the very edge of the world. Down through yellow-tinted mask, Disconnected feet respond in autonomic march. They hear the spirit of the stone and soil. Very nice. Very nice. Very nice. So 
maybe we can hear from Stephanie. I have two things that I can read. One is a science fiction poem that I actually have in the poetry collection that Ken Goodswell put together because I hadn't written any poetry in a while. And the other one is more indicative of the sort of thing that I write that I put into my fiction. And that's a fantasy poem. And in the um, book, and this is a something that doesn't have a title from Curse of the Genre. Part of the story was seeing pictures, reliving scenes from the origin of this very intensive tribe of women. Uh, They couldn't have any children. Their, Their originator had basically put a spell on them so that they couldn't have male children. So they're Amazonian, but they're also extremely intense, uh, both fighters and magic users. And there's a lot of ugly in her history that made her do something so drastic. But part of it was also how much she loved her daughter. And there's a lot of stuff that goes on. So this first poem is the song that she's singing. This is actually someone else singing it to her daughter. And it's his own type of spell. Soft as the wind from the sun-kissed sea, fragrant and thrilling and warm. Spread like a blanket on my little love. Hug her and keep her from harm. Yours is the whisper in her tiny ear that wakens her senses when danger is near. Tis you that will warn her whene'er she need fear. And I trust my daughter to you. Rich is the soil full of magic and life, so firm neath my little one's feet. Nurture the rabbit and nourish the plant, ensuring my daughter will eat. Soften her footsteps so not can be heard. Teach her of learning beyond the mere word. Show her the magic of all you've interred. And I trust my daughter to you. Silken the touch of the ice-born stream as it ripples its joyous way. Kindly replenish the throat of my love and cool in the heat of the day. If ever my daughter should have to take flight, yours is the place she may come for respite. Scatter her scent and shield her from sight. For I trust my daughter to you. Bright like no other the light of the sun, feeding the world with its glow. Give her the warmth of your light and your love. With your strength she'll weather the snow. Bless her with glorious light after rain. Brighten the world so she'll know her terrain. Hide if my daughter, darling, needs shadows again. As I trust my daughter to you. The four elements and basically trying to encourage them to take care of his, what is his foster daughter. So Very that's, nice symmetry. Well, I'd, and I told you, I grew up on Poe. That's the kind of poetry that that I try to write, where I you have... I really hear the influence in your work. Thank you, because I consider that a huge compliment. I really, one of the things that I loved that Poe did so well was to take the sound of the poem and help it reinforce the meaning of the poem. And so uh, I try and do that sometimes in my prose as well, mm-hmm. but... No, I really like this particular piece. So I, I, I appreciate your comments very much. That particular piece almost sounds like it could fit into a half a dozen different uh, Le Guin stories. And it would just yeah. fit perfectly. In this case, it really was intended to, it's sort of like uh, giving gifts to a child. You mm-hmm. know, her mother gave her something that's pretty harsh. You know, you can never have male sons in a paternalistic world where, you know, your value is your ability to give sons, but he was really passing on because he's magical and he's teaching magic to both the mother and the daughter that he's, 
he's encouraging all those things to be supportive of his daughter. I, I, I just, I really liked how it turned out. I, I liked how it sounded and I liked how it felt. It worked very nicely. This is really kind of why I love poetry because you basically did in what, what was that? Two, three minutes, what it would take two hours to do in a movie or however, you know, 300 pages to do in a book uh, where you're taking a thematic concept and it is a story, but it's all so compressed and in a very lovely way. And, and I just think that poetry is so amazing because it can do that. It does. I, I think that's one of the reasons why I loved it, why I started with it and why I never really let it go. Yeah, it's kind of amazing about poetry. I, I never really thought of myself as a poet. For for a long time, I really thought of myself as an author only. But, you know, it's funny how poetry grabs hold of you. And the short form is, uh, it's like flexing different muscles as a writer. And I think when you learn to do so much with so few words, it translates over into your prose really well, too. And if you think about it, most of the better authors in our genre also were poets. They also put poetry into their work, which we've already gone over a few examples. So this is actually a song lyric. And this is, uh, the title is Forever to Infinity. It, uh, my heroine is marooned in space and not sure she's ever going to get back. And so she speaks something and it actually turns into a song. I am unmoored. I am adrift on the vastness of space. Like a boat, lines cast free from the shore, slowly drifting out to sea. No rudder, no compass, no map. Across the vasty void, forever to infinity. The farther I drift across the vasty void, the harder it will be for me to find my way back to the endless sea, to safe harbor, to home, to thee. I may discover new worlds out there, or I might just drift across the vast nowhere, forever to infinity. I am excited, ah, the adventure, the dreams of magnificence in the sky. I am terrified, for I shall surely die. I am lonely for home and love left far behind. Across the vasty void I fly, going where? Nowhere at all. No reason why. Forever to infinity. Oh, I like really that. Really nice. nice. That's great. I love the nautical feel, you know? And it had such a cadence. It kind of reminded me of sea waves in a way. Mm -hmm. With the rhythmic quality. Uh, I'm kind of hesitant to do mine because it's um, the, the basic premise is more or less stolen. Uh oh! Aren't all premises stolen? No, I think so. there's no such thing as an original. <laughs> original okay. Premise. Like I said earlier, I was trying to stick something into my cruise novel and couldn't have a karaoke night or something like that because you can't use popular lyrics or other things. So I decided to do a twelfth night uh, Shakespeare-themed event on the uh, space cruise. So what I did was I had several different pieces. Some direct Shakespeare that people were performing in costume, two guys doing the balcony scene from Romeo and Juliet, uh, things of that nature. Uh, and then I came up with one, to breathe or not to breathe? That is the question. 
Nice. Whether it's, whether it's nobler to farm and grow my own air or suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous prices that the commissary charges. And if I should compress my own air, what of the sea of troubles it could entail? And by growing them to risk getting the mix all wrong and to sleep, perchance to dream, aye, there's the rub. And I won't go through with the rest of it. I went all the way down through a bear bodkin and the rest of Shakespeare's, but uh, a lot of the stuff that I wrote was out, out, brief uh, light for the little glowing red LED of warning and other things based on things stolen from the Shakespeare theme. Nice. That reminds me of Hal also. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I thought it was cute. Very Thank cute. You. That one actually was based on something I wrote in high school when I was really pissed off about having hay fever and it was to breathe or not to breathe, whether it is nobler to take the antihistamine and be drowsy or suffer unable to breathe because I want to stay awake kind of logic. Oh, cool. You know, it's kind of like Weird Al Yankovic uh, taking song lyrics and twisting them uh, to put different ideas in them. Yes. Yes. Well, that's all um, part of poetry too. What I'm going to ask is each of you to uh, again, introduce yourself, one of your books, and how people can find you on the web. So, Stephanie, let's start with you again. I'm Stephanie Barr. I write fantasy and science fiction, mostly prose, but plenty of poetry is in there, including Curse of the Genre. You can find me on Amazon, on Facebook. I have a website called stephanieebarr.us, S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E-E-B-A-R-R. And I do have a book of poetry, but it's uh, mostly poetry that I wrote originally back when I was younger called uh, Musings of a Nascent Poet. And it is free everywhere but Amazon because Amazon makes me charge 99 cents. I'm uh, Wendy Van Camp. I'm an author and poet. My first poetry collection is called The Planets. It's available on all online retail locations like Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Cobol, you name it, it's there. Um, you can get it as both a paperback or as an ebook. My website is called No Wasted Ink. It's nowastedink.com. And you can also find examples of my short stories and poems at Curious Fictions and on Medium. My uh, Medium handle, I believe, is either W. Van Camp or it could be No Wasted Ink. I kind of alternate between the two. But I'm out there. Um, most of my poetry can be uh, found for free or for a low cost. And of course, all my books are on Amazon. Ken? Yeah, Ken Goodsword. Um, my website is dimensionfold.com, uh, where you will find my poetry, my sci-fi, some nonfiction. And if you sign up for my newsletter, eventually you'll also get to see my vampire series, and uh, some dark comedy. Mike? Mike Van Horn. My author site is galaxytalltales.com. And there you'll find descriptions of, of my trilogy, uh, short stories, uh, other things. And if you sign up, I will inform you when both the ebook and the paperback versions of the uh, books are coming out. Okay, and I'm Eric Klein. can be found at ericlkline.com. I do hard science fiction with a uh, small touch of Shakespearean poetry thrown in. Thank you all for joining us, and uh, thank you all for the um, interesting chat about sci-fi and poetry.
Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thanks.